How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Hi. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Well, thank you, Tom. That was that was an interesting and powerful introduction. You know, the, the way uh, you slow down perception of time, you know, seize the day, you do something new. It's so true. It's true. And, and, I mean, it just almost took my breath away in many ways because there was a moment like that. It's anticipation. And Mark is not here today, everybody, because Mark is volunteering his time. He is bicycling. It's, what, a couple of hundred miles? Like five, seven, eighteen hundred. Yeah. yeah, a lot of miles for the Pan Mass, raising money for cancer and so many reasons to do it, like millions and millions of them so hopefully we'll be able to help them but but today we have a whole different genre today we're we're talking about something that brings life and joy and pleasure to so many people music can you please introduce our guest for tonight well dr joe our guest never worked at the rodeo and he can't even ride a horse classically trained on the cello as a child he switched the electric guitar during the swinging 60s and in the early 70s he switched again this time to lead singer. His rock and roll career blossomed, leading to gigs that included five years touring and recording with Boston's Thunder Train, a brief stint working as a roundabout with Circus Vargas, and a wild ride with Aerosmith lead guitarist in exile, Joe Perry. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Cowboy. Can you pronounce? Mm. <laughs> ba- Beale? Mock. Ma- ma- mock. Mock, mock, obviously, but Beale... Beale. You'll get it, Tom. It's a lot of letters. I know. Four of them. You can do it. It, it could ring a bell. B as, in, B as in bell. There we go. E as in... <laughs> there it is. E as in elevator. Thank you, Tom. And welcome, cowboy. Thank you, Dr. Joe. It is so much fun. And I just want to say we have another extra special guest as well. Extra because he's extra and also special because he's special and extra special because he happens to be my son-in-law. Brendan Mulhern is here from New York, <laughs> the incredible actor who's you. doing also, and you just had some great work in New York recently at Columbia. Oh, uh, yeah, just finished up a, a short film. Uh, here tonight to support and just be a fan, to be a rock fan, to be a guitar fan, um, and maybe help out with any terminology that Dr. Joe might not be familiar thank with. Thank you. Um, especially around, like, drug paraphernalia that somebody as esteemed as Dr. Joe would not even, like, you know, he doesn't. Dane, he, Dane he, he knows to, virtually nothing about drugs. No, yeah, I know. Right, 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 yeah, so yeah. it's, it's true. Yeah, just other than my encyclopedic Thank you so much. If you need it, I do appreciate that very much. And we've got Larry in in our uh, studio over there, who is going to at some point be helping us because we have some special material as well. So, cowboy, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Great to be here, Dr. Joe. I always enjoy coming to the beautiful studios of WATD, and I thank you very much for inviting me. It is a pleasure. Yes, WATD, Bill Perry. Wait, what was his name again? Ed. I'm thinking of his son. But this is what we're <laughs> going to be talking about tonight. Once a rocker, always a rocker. 
And I, I got a chance to read it. It's diary format, but I'm, I'm just curious. It's how much of it is the diary, and how much is it you remembering what was happening from the diary? Yeah, well, when the the once a rocker always a rocker book is a diary that I kept while I was on the road with Joe Perry. Joe, for the younger people out there, is with Aerosmith uh, in the seventies. Uh, that's when they were having hits like Sweet Emotion, Walk This Way, Back in the Saddle. Um, Joe's lead singer, Steven Tyler, is a uh, wonderful guy, but um, for some reason the two, two characters were like oil and water. Uh, to, mm. And, and uh, for, Joe ended up wanting to leave the band after a very successful run in the 70s and do his own thing. So in '79, he bailed out of the Joe, uh, out of the Aerosmith camp and started his own Joe Perry project, and um, quickly released two albums on Columbia Records. Let the music do the talking, and I've got the rock and rolls again. Good solid rock and roll records. Um, while that was all going on, my career with Thunder Train, which was locally out of Boston, out of the Rat, rest in peace, Jimmy Harold. The, owner of the rat just passed away last sun sunday mm. um thunder train had come to a, a close and i was recommended highly recommended to um joe perry as being the new lead singer for the band um so i joined in 82 and uh started this diary and uh yeah it's like you say the the actual diary wasn't like a Marsha Brady dear diary today I felt so sad and <laughs> it was more uh rehearsal at one o'clock Joe didn't smile had dinner at the wherever and this and that it was the day at a glance kind mm -hmm. of yeah. a diary yeah um I had a lot of little codes, little stars, little crosses, little things that would mean things to me personally that wouldn't mean anything to anybody else whether I was, you know, having a date or getting paid or owed somebody money or I could read these hieroglyphics. Any, anyway, um, what happened, the, the, the diary went for two and a half years. Uh, suddenly, my career with the Joe Perry Project, which had blossomed into a touring group, we were nationally touring, we got signed to our own record label, MCA, had signed us MCA Universal, we did the album. Uh, Joe had been with Columbia CBS previously. Um, we were really restructuring the band and, and building it on, on our own terms. We had a new manager, new label, new everything, and I was all set to just let it roll. Um, that's when Steven Tyler and Aerosmith said, hey, look what Joe's doing. He's got a lot of good stuff going on. He's got a great manager. He's got a new label. He's got... And so they kind of got back together and took our manager and took our road crew and took a lot of the stuff that the project had put together with a whole new energy. Um, you know, there was still a lot of Aerosmith energy left, too. I'm not taking away. You know, they still had Steven Tyler. They had uh, Tom Hamilton. They had Joey Kramer. Um, and they had fans all over the world. Uh, so all of a sudden I was back riding the bus and, uh, and, hmm. and out of the band. Um, so, yeah, and then I, so, it was, I was at a low IM at this point, <laughs> uh, <yes. laughs> and, and uh, I put that diary 
up on the shelf and I forgot about it or didn't want to look at it for a long time. Mm. Um, people who are writing books or doing shows about Aerosmith, you know, VH1 specials or whatever, uh, started getting wind of the fact that Mock Bell kept this diary that actually had dates um, attached to important things that happened in the 80s, early 80s, when Aerosmith and Joe Perry were on the outs. So I started getting these calls from writers, you know, hey, can you tell me what was the day that Joe actually filed for divorce with his first wife, and when did he meet his second wife, and these kind of things. I could go back to the diary and say, okay, yeah, I can tell you the exact day, and I can tell you a little bit of backstory too. This ended up getting to a podcaster in California who invited me in early 2019 to be on his show. Is this diary for real cowboy? What's the story? I said, oh yeah. And I told him a couple stories and then the stories rolled and it turned out to be this super long, like two hour podcast. But at the end of it, I was astonished when I started getting all this. It ended with the host saying, hey, you got to publish this thing. This is fantastic. Um, I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you and I are interested in it. I don't know if anybody else would. And then my mailbag filled up with all these first day buyers that's what they said. I'm a first day buyer. So I said, well, I guess I got to get a product. So now finally to answer your question, I went back to the original diary and yes, I put everything that was in the diary onto the spreadsheet onto my manuscript and then I filled in what those hieroglyphics meant. Mm -hmm. And there were memories. There were things I left out of the diary because they are etched in my brain and they were super low IMs for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, either biological or ICs, yeah. my own, you know, somebody threw gob of mm. bubble gum in my hair on yeah. the stage in, w in Washington, D.C., and I had to cut half I, my hair I off. These that times of things. that one, yeah. <laughs> Those kind of things would happen, and um, I wouldn't necessarily put those in my diary, but I, I knew as soon as I saw the date, oh, the D.C. show, yeah, I know what happened there, and I filled in. So it's a, it's a, it's a true diary. All the dates... The timeline is 100%. I recreated some of the entries to so that you could read it and understand what's going on mm -hmm. since it was um, written like a caveman originally. Well, it's, it's a terrific story, folks. Once a rocker, always a rocker. But it's a history that so many people can relate to because it, it, it laid a foundation for so much music afterwards. Ben, you were just saying off air about the, the opening of the book. Yeah, I think uh, I think the opening of the book is brilliant um, because because Mark, you start off with the story of telling Joe Perry and his people no. You'd already been a veteran of the Boston and New England rock scene for for several years. You had your own personality, your own reputation, your own you know banner that you wanted to to wave, so to speak. Um, and and yet you find yourself like you're a year into like your first like regular job, as you say. Um, and so there's so much into that beginning of the story of not only the rebellion, the real rock and roll attitude to tell somebody like Joe Perry and his people, no, I'm not interested. And then also the, the story of the artist who's waiting for that phone call. There are so many different rockers and dreamers and artists that like are waiting for that phone call. And so there you were working in your dad's store and you get, you get a phone call. So what was that like 30 seconds before that phone call? And then what was it like 30 seconds after that phone call? Yeah, well, 30 seconds before the call, you know, I was definitely struggling in the IC mm. in my own 
perception of myself and how people saw me mm-hmm. um, because I'd gone from being in the spotlight, a rock and roller uh, on stage practically every night um, with fans, people wanting my autograph, and now when the book opens, I've scurried back to the family business. I'm wearing a lab coat. I'm down in the cellar taking in broken record players at this uh, audio shop, the Music Box in Wellesley. Very humbled. If an Aerosmith uh, song comes on the radio, you know, I don't want to hear it. I'm mad. That band from Boston made it, and here I am. Mm. I, you know, I, I had lunch with a guy from Columbia and Sire and Walt Warners, and they came to see me play in New York, and they all turned me down. And I was in a bad place. And when the call comes, totally unexpected, expecting it to be, you know, can you come out and pick up this broken TV and bring it in? And it's Earthquake Morton at Tim Collins' office. We've just taken over management of Joe Perry, and we want you to be the lead singer. This is going to be a national act. You're going to be on a major label. We're ready to go. We just need you. And I said no. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I I said no because I did not want to go to that audition and have them go, ah, you're good, but you're not quite what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get my hopes up one more iota because I'd had my hopes up so many times. And I just, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore was where I was at. But then after I said no and hung up the phone, (laughs) and that's the next page in the book, I'm at first I'm congratulating myself. Why would I ever want to go on a national tour with Joe Perry and hang around with all those models and money and all that? Yeah, why would you ever want to do that? Why would I want to do that? I don't not. want to do that Absolutely anymore. Absolutely not. And then I start kicking myself. What yeah, the heck did you did just you, do? What did you just turn uh, down? <laughs> and then, thankfully, the phone rings again, uh, and. I quickly pick it up, and it's Earthquake, and says, I'm sorry, but that answer's not going to fly. You're going to be here at 1 o'clock on Friday, and mm-hmm. you're going to audition for this gig. It's got your name on it, and you're doing it. I thanked Earthquake. Mm-hmm. He gave me the six songs, and uh, and uh, off we went for an exciting adventure for a couple of years there. Yeah, I mean, and again, the Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, Cowboy Mock Bell, it's a great read. And it just takes you through this remarkable journey that you were on. I mean, what was that like for you? And, you know, some of these shows where there's thousands of people, you were overseas, there were tens of thousands of people screaming, police come in, and then they start doing the show. I mean, remarkable. Well, yeah, I mean, I would not never trade that. Uh, it was a great uh, experience to actually experience what you just described, you know, being down in South America, someplace in the spotlights with thousands of people screaming. And the the funny thing with the Joe Perry project, though, was in between doing Pocono Downs Raceway or some other fantastic gig in Vegas or, or L.A., we'd be at in, in Marshfield at some yeah. roadhouse or... or uh, Lowell. Yeah, or just, up in Lo- yeah, at, at regular rock clubs, you yeah. know, the Channel in Boston, uh, and every city had their own ch- channel. Was the place at the time that would bring in a you know a band that could bring in a thousand people at ten bucks a head, which is a- was actually a better money maker for a rock band on the road sometimes than being the opener at the big show at the Boston Garden. I mean, it's more prestigious and exciting, definitely, to play the Boston Garden, 
But if you're the opener on a show that's already sold out with ZZ Top and you're really just a superfluous thing on mm-hmm. the bill, uh, they you know do with you as they will, and you're all done by 9 o'clock, and it's like, <laughs> what do we do now? We, we were used to going on at 12 o'clock, you know, midnight with the Joe Perry Project in these concert clubs. This is back in the days when rock fans were really young mm-hmm. and ready to go all night. Yeah. And we went all night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember back then going to, I think I saw the Stones at, uh, at Boston Garden when they came there. That was a long, long time ago. And I know I saw the Joe Perry Band because 1982, even though I was in New York, I think we came mm-hmm. back a couple of times to see you guys. I'm just so thrilled to, to have you right here now, having seen you up there all those <laughs> years ago. We were a lot younger. Larry, do we have any of this music? If if there was one song that maybe we have, which which one do you think would sort of demonstrate your talents? Well, I mean, and once a rock, the, the the book is named after the album, yeah. which is named after the first song I wrote with Joe Perry, which was "Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker." I mean, that's an easy yeah one to to go to. Here we go. Let's hear it.
it wasn't on our great musicality or cash or some drugs crazy thing on this it was it was two guys that trusted each other and had respect for each other and that's how we moved forward and that is exactly the I am right respect leads to value value leads to trust and we respect and value so many people in this and trust so we, uh, we were off air again talking though about really some of the rush of being up on stage and then you were saying that there are these hours and hours of just traveling from one place to another and yeah well you, you asked I mentioned that people self-medicate yeah. in, in this business. Uh, by self-medicate, I mean, you know, drinking or smoking or, you know, getting high in one way or another. And I was just pointing out to the doctor that in, in uh, rock and roll, you're only doing – you're working for an hour or two a day. And then and then you your day at work finishes with your third encore and the p- place going absolutely bonkers and, and, and women wanting to sleep with you and people throwing their underwear up at the stage. And then you're whisked off. You try to get some sleep and then you're in the van to drive 12 hours to the next gig. And it's just endless waiting for that next gig. And so what do you do? You smoke. You drink. Mm-hmm. You do this. You do that. Um and like I said, I, I mean, this is my own layman thought of it, but I think the American worker who gets up, goes to work from nine to five, I, there's eight hours of the day where you're not a lot, you're not supposed to be getting high during eight mm-hmm. hours, and it's a it's a good reason for a guy to be employed because it keeps you a, away from the liquor cabinet until you get off work, and then you hit the liquor cabinet until you fall asleep and go back to work the next day. But we only had a one-hour workday, so that left 23 hours to, and to try to keep that high going that we left the last workday at. It was very hard to negotiate, and there's nobody, there's no book about it. There's nobody coming to your rescue. I mean, everybody is just like you, lucky dog. You know, you're up there singing, and people are throwing themselves at you. I wish I was you, and they're not. Geez, you know, how how do you, how do you deal with that, or have you do you, have you had had counseling on how to be a rock star and how to negotiate this? Because yeah. it's pretty. And, and what happens when it ends? You know, are you going to go into this? It, you're up at the top of the roller coaster right now. What happens when it ends? Well, nobody wants to think about when it ends. That's for sure, because mm. it's a it's a very hard place to be. Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about. This is off topic, but you know, I I was reading your book, and I'm thinking about uh, the I am, and how it goes from you know uh, the I see, how I see myself, how I dress, how I present myself. Goes then it goes to the biological part. You know, am I a little guy? Am I a big guy? Am I strong? Am I feeling strong? Am I sick? Am I well? And then, and then I have. The uh, the two IMs the 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 social one out in the world doing yeah. my shows and then the one at home. Yeah. Anyway, and I can hardly read the book because just looking at that circle and that just sets my mind thinking hmm. about some. I apply it to so many things. One of the things I apply it to is, and it, even though I'm a lead singer, and I wrote a book about uh, di- and I share my diary with the world, I, I don't really think I'm a huge. E- egotist mm-hmm. I, 
I stopped short of being Muhammad Ali. I never, I am the greatest. Right. No, I never said that. I didn't even say I was very good. And I always wondered, am I any good at all? Mm. What I did, um, what I found I did with my bands, the Joe Perry Project and Thunder Train before it, I'd be up on stage and I'd say, and behind me, the greatest drummer in the world, mm. Bobby Edwards. And I would make a big show about Bobby. And over on my side, this bass man, he's going to have you, you'll have nightmares about this guy. I'd be building up everybody in the band like a ringmaster. Can I direct your attention to this, that? Never to myself, always to everybody else. And I guess in the end, what I was thinking like was, if I've got the greatest band in the world backing me up, then I must be pretty good too. Mm -hmm. um, but that was my way. And, you know, you talk about it in the book. I was showing respect to the other players and showing how I valued them. Um, and it built me up yeah. by building them up. That's right. And, uh, you know, seeing you spell it out in the first pages of your, of your book, um, you know, it really... Uh, it stops me and I just go off into this thought of, of how these things really apply, certainly to me and probably anybody that reads your book. Well, I appreciate that very much, Cowboy. I really do. So the I Am approach, we're doing the best we can, but boy, you also were influencing millions of people and still do. I mean, we just heard this music. We all immediately start moving. What is that like for you to know that that you have had that influence on so many people. Yeah, those things come a lot more uh, clearer in the second part of my life than they did back then. Um, you know, everything was very kind of cut and dry back then. You would hope to get a standing ovation at the end of your show, and then you'd leave, and then it was forgotten. And well, I'm talking back in the 70s and the early 80s, you know, nobody was filming it. Nobody, mm. certainly with a, <laughs> with a cell, their own camera, and not even with a big, you know, WCVB wasn't coming down to film me every time I played a gig. You know, it was lost in the ether. Whereas today, I'm so connected now uh, with a lot of people that, saw these gigs, whether you know it was in Arizona or Rhode Island or wherever it was, and now they can get in touch with me and say what you just said, that you inspired me to pick up the guitar, and I ended up doing pretty well, and here's the record that I did, and, and, mm. and, and it was inspired by you. And I, that's an incredible, incredible feeling, and it's, I think it's the, in the second half of my life, I got into... Uh, teaching and, and helping uh, run a music rooms for younger kids because I, I really felt that was the best thing that I could impart um, was to uh, keep, keep inspiring people. And I think one of the ways I inspire people is because between you and me, I'm not that good. I got, I got a lot of soul, man. I got mm -hmm. the feel. But when I play guitar or sing... It's not like, you know, if I start singing and Freddie Mercury comes out of my mouth, you're going, oh, he's good. He's so good. I could never do that. I'll never be a singer and walk away. Whereas when I sing, Freddie Mercury doesn't come out of my mouth. <laughs> and just the simple stuff comes out. But people start jiggling around. And the kid's going, geez, Cowboy's got the 
you know, the girls are jiggling around their seats. He's not even that good. I could do. I could be better than him. You cannot. You cannot for one second limit or 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 talk down the responsibility that a frontman has. And a frontman personality is as big of of a role to play in being a frontman of a rock band for sure as your ability to like you know hold the high note or or you know like wowing a crowd is actually. I think probably as important when you're leading frontman. So, the fact that you could step up on stage and not only join, you know, Joe Perry obviously had his reputation ahead of him, but that you got up on stage and you said, "Well, you know, if I were to if I were to be a bassist and I was to join a band like that, like, well, okay, I can back him up, but you know, it's Joe Perry's band. If I'm a rhythm guitar player in Joe Perry's band, I can go, well, I can just I can play those chords and like let Joe do his thing. You had to lead the crowd." Yeah. You had to lead the audience every night. You had to get up there and you had to put voice to those songs. You had to read the crowd. You had to liven them up if they were if they weren't like the best crowd. You had to be the frontman for it for Joe Perry. So how do you how much of your personality, your natural personality came out of that? And how much of you do you was that a performance? <laughs> well that was a a very tricky uh obstacle course because I'm was coming in from Thunder Train, where I was a a very uh, animated lead singer and very much uh, a star type of singer, you know, I mm-hmm. was going for the Mick Jagger, James Brown. I'm the damn star of the show. Make no mistake about it. Um, now I'm joining Joe Perry, who not only is the the, na- the band's named after the guitarist, and he's the su- big celebrity, and he's coming off of just quitting a, the biggest band around because the lead singer is kind of doing the same thing I was doing with Thunder Train so I'm thinking I don't <laughs> want to jump into the spotlight and step on the leader's toes now Joe on his side was saying he's not going to get close to the spotlight because he actually started me out in the band not even in the center of the stage where a singer usually stands right. in a rock band. He had me set up way off in the wings next to the mop bucket over on the side. He had me as far away as possible. I was just going to put in those words, those boring word parts of the songs until the exciting guitar part came back in and he'd take over. And um, I actually went out on the road with him for the first... We had at, When I started with him, we had Brad Whitford, who was the other big Aerosmith guitarist so I had the two Aerosmith guitarists in the middle of the stage and I'm over as I say in the book I'm over on the side of the stage like the tambourine player of the Partridge family uh, in the dark singing and um, once again I didn't put up any fight I said hey I took the gig I'm going to do it and I'm going to prove myself and we're going to see where this goes and sure enough after uh, a I don't know what it was, a month, a month and a half, I w- was moved into the center of the stage. Joe trusted that I wasn't going to steal the show, try to steal the show from him, and he trusted that I would respect the boundaries and, and actually add... Um, I talk about in the book the ability the uh, a lead singer has to move the eyes of the audience to different parts of the stage at the appropriate time or move them away at certain times and I was pretty adept at this kind of thing um, 
No, I'm not saying the whole law. You know, there's a lot of smart. There's a lot of musicians out in the audience. They know which way to look when the drummer's doing a drum solo. But there are certain moments in the night where, uh, when people should be looking at Joe Perry, they're looking at me just because I'm, you know, shaking the maracas, dancing around over on the side, and I knew that's where I got to cool it, or I got to dance over towards the boss and kind of move behind him a little bit and dance. And now all the eyes are on that spot, and now it's electric. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such an important skill to be able to do that. So you've got this book, and then after the two and a half years of being the Joe Perry Project, what happened then, and what's going on with you now? Yeah, well, that's um, during the pandemic. Um, was it? I guess. I guess it was actually just. It was the year before the pandemic that I, that I. Uh, put Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker together as a manuscript and uh, put out the the diary as a book. Um, And then right when I was going to go out and start doing uh, book signings and all that was when the pandemic happened. Um, But that was all right. That gave me time. The book surprisingly started selling really well. I mean, I knew that those first whatever – 30 or 40 guys that sent me immediately sent me ex- encouragement and said that they'd be a first day buyer they all did buy it and then they came back and bought another one to give to somebody for a present and then the book just continued going so I was like wow and uh, so then I did the audio book version of it great and so that's out on audible and then um, people were saying okay what happened next what happened the next morning when you woke up? Because the book ends with me getting dumped out of the van and Joe saying, goodbye, cowboy. Um, and that's the end of the book. Just like it begins with the phone call, getting mm-hmm. me into it, and it ends with Joe saying goodbye. And the very next morning, Aerosmith were uh, uh, rehearsing and, and ended up having a really good reunion and, and had more hits ahead of them. Um, people were also ask me about things I allude to in the book. You know, I talk about exciting nights with my band Thunder Train, playing with the Runaways and Thin Lizzy and meeting David Bowie and all this, but I just kind of zoom by. It's just like things from my earlier career with Thunder Train. Um, So I said, you know what, I'm going to... And now I'm in the middle of pandemic still, so so I'm going to write another book. So I wrote I Got a Rock, Hmm. which is based on a I Got a Rock was a big Thunder Train song. I, I seem to base my books around names of songs. And that is uh, the prequel and sequel to Once a Rocker. It's, you know, it's kind of rock history. It's when, this, The second book opens at the Jimi Hendrix concert when I'm 15 years old in Framingham, and I'm seeing Hendrix. Hmm. And I'm comparing notes in my head between Jimi Hendrix experience and my band, The Mechanical Onions. <laughs> And I'm seeing very appealing. <laughs> I'm seeing ourselves somehow on the same stage. Like Jimmy's definitely bigger than me and doing a lot better. But Camp Onions, we're right on his tail. This is how I thought when I was that That's great. age. It's great. And so the book, you follow me from seeing Jimmy to going to the Boston Tea Party, which was you know the early place where we would go see Led Zeppelin and uh, Jeff Beck group when they'd come to town. Once again, I'm there getting ideas for my band, the Cynics or Black Sun, whoever I'm in at the time. And then Thunder Train happens. And I kind of bring people through the history of uh, – there's touchstones all through the book, you know, uh, 
Beggar's Bank, which just came out, and I've got an idea off of that for what I'm going to do with this. So it's kind of the history of rock from the eyes of a garage rock and kid, and then it goes, and then I ended up working the circus for a while, and then I ended up with Joe Perry for a while. So it's one strange, crazy adventure after another. So then I have the two books, and then I'm out doing appearances. That's how I met Dr. Joe, out on an appearance. And I said to myself and the people, the kids around me, I call, I always call them kids. Yeah. Um, if they're, you know, younger than me, yeah. they're kids. Oh, yeah. That happens after kids. 30. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of kids in this room. I except- said, geez, you know, what am I doing? Just, I don't have to just write books for the Smithsonian. I should be out on the darn stage. So um, the Mock Bell Experience, speaking of Jimi Hendrix. All right. The Mock Bell Experience is happening, folks. Um, my website, once again, going back to Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, my website is oncearocker.com, and you can keep up with the adventures of the brand-new Mock Bell Experience, and I will give you a worldwide scoop we will be making our premiere appearance in lexington massachusetts at an outdoor festival on september 10th okay folks let's put that in your book it's called hollapalooza not lollapalooza this is hollapalooza because it's outside of revolution hall in lexington mass on 910 september 10th i think it's a saturday is it saturday it's like an eight day uh, an eight band um, festival and we're headlining and and it's early but we go on at six we go on at six and there's beer and there's food and it's a whole big food hall thing and is the set list going to include hits of yours for your career do you have new material that you're going to be presenting thank you brendan exactly you will hear i know the hits I, know, I know some of the terms you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah we're going back into um the the joe perry project and thunder train um a songbook and also songs by scattered in by people like the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck, and uh, nice. Jimi Hendrix that inspired the music that we play. But it's a it's a rock and roll. I call it. I I see myself as a soul rocker. Really, I I take just as much from Wilson Pickett and James Brown as I do from uh, Robert Plant and Roger Daltrey. But um, we don't play metal. We're a blues-based hard rock band, hmm. and uh, yeah, and I got the best drummer in the world behind me, Bam Bam. Oh and, yeah, and a kid named Johnny Press on guitar, and an old goth rocker named Joe Black has risen from the grave to play bass uh, next uh, to me. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, sounds like an incredible lineup. It it's going to be a, <laughs> really fun. <laughs> I like that a lot. It's a four ring circus, okay. and if you go to onceorocker dot com, you can look at. Uh, I don't have any recordings yet. This is brand new. The guys have been re- the guys are committed to it and showed me value and respect because they rehearsed for months mm. before they even called me down to join the band. Wow! It's almost like a tribute to Cowboy Mock Bell. I mean, they yeah. really are into it. These guys grew up. Going it's, to my shows and they know they're excited about it. It's great. So, <laughs> you know, we're we're almost out of time tonight. So the, the the I am has two truths because the four domains interconnect: the home, the social, the biological, and the I see. How I see myself, how I think other people see me. Small changes can have big effects. Given what we're talking about tonight with music and tradition, rock, 
What small change can you recommend to our listeners? Well, these are not very original, but definitely if you're in my age group and you've strayed away from listening to music and you're listening to too much news and talk and all that, keep doing what you're doing. It's great, but mix in some music. Try to listen to some music and connect with that if you're not. I think it will be it'll do everybody good. And also just a little thing, and once again, it's another thing that slips as we get as we uh fall into our roles. Be nice to the person that you share your place mm-hmm. with. Hey, you look good today. Yeah. Oh, you know, you do something with your hair, it looks really cute. Um say that. You know, pull it out of your old mouth and make your and say it. And, and you know, she, he, whatever might look at you like, you're nuts and don't give me that. But do it tomorrow and do it the next day and the next day and keep doing it. Yeah. That's great <laughs> advice. Those those little things. Those little things. Little things that matter. The second truth of the I am. Because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through their IC domain. And you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. It has an effect on your biological domain. This means you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Cowboy Mark Bell, what kind of influence do you want to be? (laughs) Well, I want to be an influence that... I don't want people to make assumptions. I want people to open up their minds, and I want people to be able to think things upside down in a, in a different way and I, I try to that's the influence I, that I try to impart on young people that I work with I'm slow to judge and I'm slow to make assumptions about anything that anybody is doing and uh, I, I respect the differences in people and I think that's what makes us all stronger as a community. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. <laughs> and I think you've been modeling that with your music, with creating a new group, with being inspiring for so many people. It's beautiful music. Thanks so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight, Cowboy. It's been great. My pleasure, Dr. Joe. Keep keep up the good work. All right. Brendan, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. Tom, it's always great. See you next week. And Larry, appreciate you queuing those things up. Mark, have a good ride. Good night, everyone. Go, 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 go.